This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, everything you know is a lie. everyone, welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi review critique show that's putting the humanities back into science fiction. My name is Gep, when I'm joined as always by my friend and co-host, Dr. Izix. Hi. This week is one of our group of ten episodes. We are on episode 80, which is pretty... It's a lot. We have like, yeah, we got a lot of episodes here. We're only like 20 away from 100. Holy smokes. <laughs> yeah, well, we need to figure out if we're going to do something for that. I hadn't thought of that. Oof. Maybe like a, a a party episode. Yeah, that's still a lot of weeks away, though. <laughs> like 20. I'll think about this. So if you are new to the show, oftentimes we do Star Trek things. Like if you came in, you saw the name of this episode, you're like, oh my god, I love that movie. We often do Star Trek things, but every 10 episodes, we want to break stuff up, so we do a movie or standalone something else. Well, mostly movies, but sometimes we talk about whether we'll do something that's a standalone something else, and then we just don't, so, yeah. Maybe one of us will read a book at some point. So, this week, <laughs> uh, we alternate every time. Uh, last time was my pick, so this week, Izix has picked what is, I guess, a lot of people's favorite sci-fi movie. It's a movie called Dark City. Released immediately before The Matrix in 1998. Engendering like many, many, many comparison videos on the internet. Yeah, with the the the, uh, the Matrix being like, you know, trapped in a thing with computers. This is trapped in a thing with aliens. Yeah, I mean they're not <laughs> they're not super similar. Like they have enough of a similar tone and some similar story beats that we'll get to. But like overall, they're actually not that similar of movies apart from a few more surface level things though they did sell the sets from this movie to the matrix yes <laughs> specifically like some of the roof, rooftop bits where it's like yeah you remember that bit where they're running through there and yeah it's the same in both movies <laughs> should i keep going yeah <laughs> <laughs> so uh dark city is a film that was uh, written and directed by alex proyas uh who uh, also did the screen play they also did movies like The Crow and Knowing. One of those is kind of good. <laughs> yeah, The Crow. There was something else that I was surprised to learn. What was that? Oh, I, Robot. Yeah, that. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> now, I kind of like I, Robot, but I don't think it should be titled that. But that's a whole other discussion. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, they've done a few things, some of it good, some of it not so good, uh, and a whole bunch of other things I've never heard of before, like song lines. I you know, I guess there was like a music video maybe. Um, but, um, there's a whole list of people here that, uh, you know, were, uh, you know, part of the, uh, the, the cast. There's also some other people that helped the screenplay, like Lou, uh, Lem Dobbs, not Lou Dobbs, but someone else entirely, David S. Goyer, uh, and of course, Alex, of course. Um, let's get to some of the actors here, because we got yeah, like we've a bunch of- a lot like, of actors. This happens with movies. You have actors that you've heard of. Yes, like, uh, you know, uh, Kiefer Sutherland is playing Dr. Daniel Schreber. Like, you don't recognize. Like, when I saw his, when I was looking up stuff of the movies, like, Kiefer Sutherland, who is he in this movie? Yeah, it, it, he seems so different than, like, the main roles he's known for, because 
most people know him as that you know one guy from like 10 bazillion episodes of 24 yeah which is you know it's action star man but he's not playing action man he's basically the, the complete opposite you know honestly who else do we got here uh we got uh rufus sewell 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 i'm not sewell um he's uh most recently known for uh the man in the high castle where he plays uh john smith um he was a high-ranking SS arm officer. That's awkward. Um, but yeah, he's been in a bunch of other things, uh, different yeah. TV shows. He was in The Legend things. of Zorro, A Knight's Tale. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. It's like, I think I remember seeing The Knight's Tale after Dark City. He's like, wait, it's that guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Legend of Zorro, uh, a bunch of other things. Um, who else do we got here? We got uh, William Hurt, who was in the, the, the all-important movie, also from the 90s. Of uh, you know, Lost in Space came out the same year as this. He was basically yes. filming <laughs> both simultaneously. Uh, so uh, you know, if you're if you're really into into, into you know 1998 sci-fi movies, he's the guy to look up. Yeah, uh, I know. I saw him in this. Is like, oh, that. Yep, definitely a sci-fi movie. Hi, William Hurt. Uh, he was also in the uh, 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 TV uh, adaptation of Dune on the Sci-Fi Channel. I think it was. Yes, he uh, played. Lord Atreides, yes. Atreides, yeah. He was Kojak and uh, the Accidental Tourist. I remember that. Weird movie. Um, he's also in some like uh, Avengers movies of some sort that you probably never heard of, but you know. That was a weird trivia thing. Like, you know, Amazon has that trivia thing when you're watching movies on there. And it just had this thing. It's like, both William Hurt and Jennifer Connelly were in movies about the Incredible Hulk. Yep. <laughs> Uh, so yes also jennifer connelly (laughs) yes so jennifer connelly uh who is i guess known best for uh labyrinth probably uh, best known for labyrinth and um the drug movie that i'm blanking on for some reason now um uh, requiem for a dream requiem for a dream there we go i hate that movie (laughs) i I, I just can't stand it (laughs) it is i mean i like it but it's deliberately uncomfortable yeah it's like I just hate all the characters of this movie. I want it to end. <laughs> Go away. I first saw her in Rocketeer, and then it was oh, yeah. a pretty big shock to see her in Requiem for a Dream after that. It's a little different, yes. Uh, yeah, she was also in uh, a few other things, uh, uh, including Dun Dun Dun, Snowpiercer, the TV series. Is that, that's not even out yet. Yeah, so it's like, a, maybe some of it's come out. I don't know. But uh, yeah, most of that's not coming out until like next year. Um, yeah, so uh, she's also in Spider-Man Homecoming. Huh, didn't notice that. Anyway, <laughs> a couple more folks let's uh, mention real quick. We got uh, 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 Ian Richardson, who plays Mr. Book. He's a sort of an older gentleman uh, who's uh, in you know, a whole bunch of things starting from the 60s. Um, most of these I don't remember, like Midsummer's oh, yeah, Night Dream is Shakespeare adaptation. Yeah. I mean, older I, older Scottish actor, so things of that era, you know, good old stage and screen gravitas. Also in Brazil. Apparently it was in House of Cards in 1990. Highlander TV series in 97. And finally, probably somebody that you're more familiar with. Yeah, Richard O'Brien. Or also known as Richard O'Brien, who is uh, best known for his role as Riff Raff with the Rocky Horror Picture Show. So I was 
I was looking up cast interviews for this movie, and I didn't find a lot of interesting stuff, but they had one of those, you know, th- like pre-movie interview trailers where like all the people are just basically describing their characters. Mm-hmm. And you have the one guy who's like, oh, like I lost, he lost his memory and has to go figure stuff out. And then the other guy's like, oh, I play a scientist who does whatever, whatever, whatever. And Richard O'Brien comes and like, my character is called Mr. Hands, because as you can see, my hands are quite long. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> now, Richard O'Brien's kind of amazing like that. Uh, yeah. He, he just knows how to be sufficiently creepy when it, the role calls for it. <laughs> Which is very fitting with the character in this movie. Yes. Um, so, uh, anything else we should uh, poke at before we get rolling? I don't think so. There was a little tiny thing about the reason that this movie seems to have so many screenwriters and various story buys and whatever is apparently that Alex Juarez kind of wrote a nonsensical script. He wrote, like, a script for movie people, and everyone's like, this is unfilmable. We're going to get some people in here to fix this. And so uh, we got the end product, which is uh, actually the version that I watched. Uh, But there's also apparently a director's cut that uh, changes a couple things. Uh, uh, I guess most noticeably the opening narration, uh, which is uh, present in the version I watched. Yeah, and we're going to get to that, but the opening narration is awful and unnecessary and actually ruins a lot of the dramatic buildup of any part of the movie. Indeed, so I kind of skip over in my synopsis. <laughs> Makes sense to me. Well, should we jump in? <laughs> All right, let's jump right into it to Dark City. So, with some opening narration spoiling basically the whole premise of the movie, we sleep down onto a dimly lit city. We see Dr. Schreber, who's correct, uh, checking his watch. The busy, bustling city around him suddenly stops, and everyone passes out, including those waiting in line for a movie called The Evil. This is just a small detail I thought it was relevant to mention. At the stroke of midnight. At the stroke of midnight. Well, 12. Um, after a spiral-filled title sequence, we find ourselves in a hotel room with a man in the bathtub. He had his, a little, little bit of blood on his forehead as he wakes up with a start. He stumbles about and checks the mirror. He gets dressed and goes to the main room of the hotel. As he does, he knocks over a fishbowl. But he puts the fish in some water to save its life, so keep it alive. It's good. We also pass by some sort of broken syringe on the floor. Really ominous. He finds a set of keys and a suitcase. The case has a postcard for Shell Beach inside. The man has flashes of memory from before the phone rings. On the other end is Dr. Schreber, warning him that his memory was erased in an experiment and that people are coming for him. The man drops the phone as he notices a body in the corner of the room, a woman with spirals carved in her flesh. The man flees as a group of strangers arrive via the elevator. He flees downstairs and notices everyone's asleep. There's a ding, and the hotel manager wakes up to portrait him about, you know, our protagonist, identifying our protagonist as Mr. Murdoch. Ledger says J. Murdoch, specifically. The manager also mentions that Murdoch's wallet is at the automat. Murdoch goes to the pier to toss the suitcase as the manager checks out the room. The manager runs into the group of pale and creepy strangers, one of whom is a child. They are looking for Murdoch. The manager, being kind of useless, is put to sleep with just a word. That word is sleep. A lady, Emma, sings in a club. After, she gets informed that Trevor wants to talk to her. She goes to Trevor's place and finds him playing with rats in a circular maze. Trevor's, uh, Schreber, I keep, I'm going to keep mispronouncing that, uh, claims that her husband has suffered some sort of psychotic break and might have memory loss and might be delusional, he might be dangerous. So, you know, if you see him, give me a call. 
Well, it keeps running a route through a spiral maze like it's some sort of metaphor or something. Yes. Hmm. Yeah, where's the exit? Which sways out? Hmm. After Murdoch trying to get uh, to guess his name in the street, we're introduced, introduced to Inspector Bumstead, who's uh, playing a you know, accordion sort of thing there. Uh, and he gets a call to uh, come investigate a murder. Murdoch goes to the automat, spots a woman outside, and proceeds to try to get his wallet back. But it's locked behind one of those little doors in the automat, because that's kind of how things work. He tries to force it open when some cops come in and gets nervous. Murdoch then focuses, and the door just kind of pops open. After the lady uh, from outside helps him get past the cops, who seem interested in talking to him, he follows her back to her spot for, you know, Bumstead. Ponders why he saved the fish, but killed the girl. The chief inspector drops by to complain about the previous detective on the case, Walensky. Walensky then barges in, screaming about how there's no way out, man! Ah! Later, we see Walensky's messy office, which Bumstead needs to sort it through in order to catch up on the case. It's quite disgusting. It's like conspiracy office. It's every conspiracy yes. office. It's papers, there's bits of string connecting things, there's spirals drawn on everything. There's bits of food and, you know, various vermin sort of, you know, under papers, you know, just piles of stuff everywhere. It's just, it's, it's a complete mess. Emma then shows up and learns from Bumstead that her husband may have killed a bunch of ladies. Uh, she doesn't seem to like this and decides to leave. Using his wallet on himself, Murdoch figures out that his first name is John. Hooray! And he's with a woman. As she gets ready for a night of adventure, John asks her if she's maybe worried about that whole killing spree thing that's in all the news. But she's not concerned. He's not much of a killer after all. And he just kind of leaves. John then looks at the postcard for Shell Beach again once more and then spots a mechanical billboard advertising Shell Beach. Climbs up on the billboard, a little platform underneath it, and pulls out a stack of papers from his coat. And all of them, all these papers are newspaper clippings about these series of horrible murders. Then the strangers arrive. John just like, who are you? They try to put him to sleep, but that doesn't quite work. So a fight breaks out involving knives. One of the uh, strangers falls to the floorboards because it's all rickety and stuff. Then John kind of focuses on the floor and the whole expands, taking the other one down with him. Strangers note that he can tune before one of those that fell floats back up and takes a swipe at John. John falls and uh, pulls a rope that then breaks the whole sign mechanical mechanism thing. And this big arm comes slicing down and chops one of the strangers' heads open. Uh, the rest of them flee, except uh, yeah, John climbs up and inspects the body. And there's some sort of weird tentacle thing emerging from the... From the top of the guy's head, it's it's really weird and creepy. Then John runs. This is the world's most like convenient fight scene. <laughs> yes. Like I'm being attacked. Oh, they <laughs> fell. Then I fell, but my falling also killed one of them. Hooray for me! I'm the hero. <laughs> so it's it's super convenient, but uh, you know, I guess d none of them know how to fight properly. So eh? <laughs> uh, below the city, uh, like actually below the city, a whole bunch of the strangers are hanging out discussing rumors of a guy who could tune. One of the strangers from the fight, Mr. Hand, confirms that they saw how this guy is indeed different. Mr. Book shows up, who seems to be their leader, I guess, and uh, he says he wants this John Murdoch. John returns to his apartment and surprises Emma. They argue, he acts confused, he mentions the Schreber, Schreber and uh, she mentions that she had an affair and that sparked all this all off. He left and probably went on a killing spree, you know how it goes. Elsewhere, Schreiber is in a pool. Mr. Hand arrives to complain about the moisture, and Schreiber 
not reporting in after, you know, the night's activities. Schreiber says he was afraid that John woke up and about, you know, and hadn't gotten much of what was in the actual syringe, so he doesn't have much of his memory. Mr. Hand then tells Schreiber, you know, he wants a copy of John's memories for reasons. Back with John and Emma, she mentions the police are looking for him. John explains he tried to test himself earlier, so doesn't think he's a killer, so it can't be him, right? He then notices the uh, police car outside, uh, Bumstead's car specifically. Speaking of, Bumstead, uh, you know, is right outside the apartment. So John tries to leave. Uh, John babbles about people being after him, and Emma kind of distracts the, uh, the uh, inspector, and there a little bit of a chase run, uh, starts up. John makes an amazing uh, appearing and disappearing door act in order to uh, flee uh, the, the inspector, not quite realizing he may have influenced that door appearing and disappearing. He's pretty good at intuiting the police and doing a bunch of parkour for a guy who doesn't even remember his own name. I guess maybe he doesn't remember not being able to do this before, so <laughs> he just kind of doing it. <laughs> um, but uh, the detective does find Schreiber's uh, card, which was left behind. During a taxi ride, John asks the cabbie about how to get to Shell Beach, because he's kind of interested in that place there. But the taxi cab driver can't quite remember. It's over there. It's one of those places. You don't know. Bumstead and Schreiber are talking when, uh, together when John uh, arrives quietly. They banter back and forth, and Schreiber seems to make a spot-on determination of Bumstead's complete personality. After they part, John follows the dock. Bumstead uh, checks in with Lidsky. Uh, he's having kind of a normal one, drawing spirals in his room and babbling about the lack of an exit. Also, his wife isn't his wife, apparently. He presses Bumstead about the past, but the inspector can't focus on it properly. Walensky mentions maybe they're dreaming this life and they'll wake up as somebody else someday. Also the case, there is no case. John follows Schreiber until the dock goes through a door and pops into existence for a few moments. Schreiber takes a fun ride to the Lair of the Strangers, where they're preparing a whole collection of personal items. The dock fills with some vials of liquid while remarking about adding ingredients. An unhappy childhood, teenage rebellion, and a death in the family. Mr. Book pops in to mentally suspend Schreiber over a pet, like telekinetic style. Schreiber speculates in his panic that maybe Murdoch is adapting, evolving or something, you know? Uh, you know, like, given the strangers were looking for the human soul, maybe he's exactly what they wanted to find. Mr. Book is not too happy about this and explains how it's kind of absurd that John can just tune, you know, given that it takes them several lifetimes in order to master it. So this is a little weird, but that's all Schreiber can get for him. I do like the Schreiber thing. He's like, you were looking for the human soul. Maybe you found it and it's going to bite you in your... And then he gets levitated over the pit. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a good little exchange here. I love it. Later, the strangers gather. Mr. Book tells them to shut it down. Metal face with a clock inside pops open and the clock within stops at 12. Yeah, the strangers are really into aesthetics. It's it's great. Giant metal face that opens up to a big old old timey clock that just slowly ticks over to twelve o'clock and pauses. And so, if I'm ever going to become a, like a supervillain, I want one of those. Just so you know. So put it on the Christmas list. Check out. Do it, otherwise I'll destroy the moon. <laughs> the clock stops, and so does everyone in the city, except for John. John sees the city shutting down and tries to wake some people, but doesn't really have any luck. Mr. Book tells them to get to tuning. A big weird machine starts up and things start happening. 
up in the city. Buildings shift, change, morph, change size. All sorts of madness around. The city shifts around John. The door to the below area pops in again, and some strangers emerge with Dr. Schraber. They also got a sleeping guy over their shoulder, who they set up in a barber shop. John watches them use a syringe on the guy's forehead, imprinting him. We also see a working-class couple turning into an ultra-wealthy couple instead, via the more imprinting and a little bit of a change of scenery. John finds Schreiber and gets a, gets a little pissed at him, using his tuning powers to knock the doc down. Schreiber explains that he can help John learn to control it, but John runs as Mr. Hand shows up. It's like, I'm out of here. The clock starts up again, as does the city, and Schreiber explains that John just kind of attacked him. He doesn't know what's going on. Seriously. Uh, let's get back to work. <clears throat> Mr. Book gives instructions for the night's experiments. Down. But there's a problem. They were unable to complete Avenue M due to an opposing force on the machines. Mr. Hand strolls in with Schraber and the copy of John's memories. After some arguments, Mr. Hand gets imprinted with the memories John was supposed to get. The memories of a serial killer. Using the Shell Beach postcard and some help from the newspaper vendor, Used to be the hotel manager from earlier. Weird. John gets directions to his Uncle Carl's place. Strangers float through the city and find the woman John ran into earlier. He doesn't know where John is, though. Mr. Wall argues that with Mr. Hand about the point of this whole adventure. Mr. Hand thinks that well, they should look up Emma next before he pulls a knife and says, I need some time here still. Meanwhile, John spots the subway map of the city and uh, the line that goes to Shell Beach. He starts a little bit of adventure on the subway trying to get his, himself to Shell Beach, but doesn't really get anywhere. Then, Walensky, the, uh, remember, you know, the, the crazy man detective here? He shows up! It's gonna be a big confrontation, Gepwin? Yeah. I mean, one, this is just an accurate, accurate representation of what it's like trying to get anywhere on the subway for the first time. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then they're gonna have the same subway scene from The Matrix. Like, the main crazy guy showed up, <laughs> they're gonna have a fight in front of a train, there's slow motion, probably. And so Walensky shows up, explains that Everything in the world is a sham. And then he has then he has figured out a way out. And so he jumps in front of the train, killing him. So I guess it was Wilensky versus the train. Anyway, <laughs> Mr. Hand and company track down Emma by the water side. He, uh, Mr. Hand is kind of all creepy as they, as, he, as they chat. But, you know, she doesn't know where John is. But, you know, it's, it's workable. You know, doesn't murder her. Emma, remembering what John said about testing himself, checks on the woman and finds her body. Bumstead finds Emma, and they start looking for John together. Meanwhile, John breaks to Carl's place, and we meet Carl and his shotgun. But instead of getting John getting shot, he gets a slideshow about his childhood instead. John spots a photo with him having a scar, but he doesn't actually have a scar now. That's kind of weird. John then questions Carl about the clock. If it's a.m. or p.m., and what happened to the day? It can't be midnight already. But Carl dismisses these questions like, eh, don't worry about it. Yes, it has not been daytime in the entire movie. Nope. <laughs> it's been dark the entire time. Uh, John also happens to find a book from his childhood, which he saw in one of the, uh, some of the slideshows there that he'd been drawing in, but it's completely blank. Carl calls up Emma to tell her about John and him being a bit off, but you know, gets caught by John uh, making the phone call. On the other end of the phone call, Mr. Hand witnesses Emma's side of the conversation. So he picks up on what's going on, flies off, while Emma and Bumstead get in the car and then midnight strikes, and the city shuts down once more. Suddenly, we've got another chase scene. Though Murdoch pins Mr. Han for a few moments at you know, the beginning of it to learn about the strangers, that they made the city, that they revise it each night to learn about you know, the humans so they could be more like humans. 
Yeah, well, I know they have a lot to get through every now and then. They just pin somebody and go like, tell me some exposition. And then they do for about five minutes and then move on. Uh, and the, the, the little tentacle things inside the bodies, that's like the, the real them. Uh, and the, the person that you're looking at here, Richard O'Brien, that's actually a corpse that they're like piloting. It's kind of creepy. Then the building changes shape and then as the chase is back on again, one stranger gets squished by a shifting building. Uh, John ends up hanging from an open door while the, the child stranger, Mr. Sleep, gnaws on his hand. John leaps out of the way onto a chimney and escapes. And then the city wakes up, but John gets up cornered by Mr. Hand once more. But then a car pulls up inside his bumstead and Emma. They pull him inside and drive off. Naturally, this leads to John being incarcerated. Uh, so he's now in, in custody and being inter interrogated by Bumstead. John asks Bumstead about how to get to Shell Beach. When was the last time he remembers the day? And similar other questions that don't really have any good answers. Bumstead gets a little pissed by all this. But then John gets his attention by making that, that, that book from earlier, from his childhood, float above the table. Ooh. John meets with Emma later as uh, one of those little divided uh, meeting things for prisoners and things like that. He explains that she didn't cheat on him, that their minds have been messed with. And then he tunes the glass out of the way so they can kiss and gets dragged off. Well, they have a central line here. This is what I love you. They can't fake something like that. And he goes, you're right. And then he mind explodes the glass. Yes. <laughs> love is more powerful than the uh, screwing with their heads. Strangers arrive at the precinct and start putting people to sleep. They grab the police chief and have him take them, take them to Mur Murdoch's cell. But Murdoch's missing, so they kill a police chief. John finds Schreiber at the pool and demands some answers. Schreiber mentions the strangers not really liking water, and then he pulls a, a gun on John. Whoops. He holds up a syringe and demands that John inject himself with it. Bumstead, who sprung John from jail, shows up and pulls a gun on Schreiber. John takes the syringe and hides it in his coat. Remember that for later, kids. The trio go for a trip, heading towards Shell Beach. Schreiber is very unhappy about this. Once they go from car to boat, Schreiber then explains more about the experiments and the strangers, you know, and their interest in individuality. That the strangers share some sort of group memory of some sort. Also, they're all dying and think that humanity can help them not die. Strangers also use machines below the city to shape it, to, to create it, to build it, and to focus their powers. But even with a library of memories and all the mechanisms, they still need an artist to put things together. So they make use of Schreiber, who got to keep the skills as a, a scientist, but had to erase everything else in his memory. So Schreiber doesn't know where they came from, who he is, where who any of them are, and everything before the city you know, came to be is completely lost. They arrive at the door to Shell Beach, inside a ruin. And beyond is a sign, a sign for Shell Beach, a big advertisement, paper on the wall. Schreiber explains that there is no ocean, that there's nothing beyond the city. So John Bumstead, getting a little frustrated by this, get to work tearing down the literal wall, you know, hammers and mind powers and all that. Beyond the wall is a star field. Space. Outer space! Then Mr. Hand and his posse arrive. Bumstead shoots a couple of them before falling out of the city wall and with, along with one of the strangers, and they kind of float off into space. Bye, Bumstead. We do get to see his point of view for a bit and get to see the entire city just floating there in a giant spiral. Yes, and so the, you know, the images of the spirals and the maze, the rat, all that kind of comes together that, oh, that is the city. <laughs> and there, 
who comment that from uh, Walensky that there is no way out. Kind of true. Hmm. Mr. Hand, who has Emma at knife point, demands that John surrender. Mr. Hand then forces John to sleep. He's like, okay, I guess you're kind of surrendering. You go to sleep now. Okay. One ride to the underworld later. John arrives in the strangest playground, strapped down to a big wheel table thing. Mr. Sleep starts the chant to kill him. Remember, Mr. Sleep's a little child, so he's like, kill him. And then they all start yelling it. It's creepy. Mr. Book halts that, that call for death and explains that it's time to move on to the final phase of their experiments. Time to become one with John Murdoch. Mr. Book hands Schreber a syringe filled with dark fluid before calling for the shutting down of the city. Shut it down forever. Well, they're distracted by doing that. Uh, Schreber straps uh, John's head down to the table and grabs the syringe that John had hid in his coat, the, the one that Sh uh, Schreber tried to inject him with earlier. Hmm. He injects John with it and gives John all the answers. And he leaves the stranger's memories aside for now. John experiences life, but with Dr. Schreber in his memories explaining a whole bunch of things. A lifetime of knowledge and skill in a single syringe, and memories in fluid form. How to tune fully and how to use the machines of the strangers against them if he so chooses. Mr. Book spots the unused syringe and asks Schreber, hey, what's up? John wakes up from his memory adventure and gets off the table like some sort of badass. You know, just sort of like, I'm going to move the table with my mind and then kind of walk off of it. And melt it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it kind of fades away behind him. Uh, he starts turning, uh, tuning up a storm as the strangers run around kind of in a panic. Mr. Book slaps him with um, his mentality and John strikes back and there's a big face-off with DBZ psychic blast power energies going at each other. This causes havoc everywhere around them and lots of strangers are knocked around and are killed or flying off into who knows where. Eventually the face-off ends and there's an explosion and floating and flying and buildings grinding out of the city as strangers are flung into the air and everything kind of goes everywhere for a minute. One explosion on the surface later, and Schreiber lands alive and safe on, the, on some rubble. Hooray! John and Mr. Book fly up into the city. All like, more DBZ style, I guess. Book throws a knife at John. Oh no, but John mind catches it. Book tries to force it into John's head, but John's tuning is stronger, and he sends it right back into Mr. Book's throat. John then lifts a water tower into the tumbling Mr. Book, who then collides with it. The tower explodes, and the creature within Mr. Book, paled, dying Mr. Book, pops out into the open and the water, and it disintegrates. John lands. Schreiber explains that Emma was re-imprinted to John, and, and the memories of the storage place were kind of destroyed, so she's not really Emma anymore. So, yeah. Sorry about that. Um, John says that, you know, I'm going to go do fix, fix things now. He's going to restart the city. And the clock starts again. As water pours out of the side of the city. Soon, there's a whole big rig of water around the city in, in, in deep space there. It's being held in by the force bubble or something, I guess. Um, John then heads off to Shell Beach so he can get to rebuilding the city around him as he goes. Emma wakes up as Anna. She leaves her job and gets on a bus. Some more tuning later, there's a peninsula jutting out of the side of the city with a seacoast town and lighthouse. John gets the door to Shell Beach that they had visited before, and Mr. Hand arrives. Mr. Hand is dying because... John's memories don't quite agree with him, but he wants to know what it felt like to be John Murdoch. John comments that, you know, maybe what they're looking for isn't in their head. Maybe they're looking in the wrong place. The city moves and shifts, and slowly, there's finally sunlight on the dark city. John opens the door, 
and sees the sun, and a pier, and Anna. John listens to her talk about it being so bright. He asks her about Shell Beach. She directs him to the peninsula, jutting off to the city wall, just to the side. He mentions that she's heading that way herself, so maybe we should go to you. The end! That's such a fun, good movie. Yes. <laughs> so uh, yeah, there's a lot in there, but uh, yeah, there's whole mysteries on mysteries. And it's like, okay, so we got we got, we got a murder mystery and there's some weird creepy guys here. Are they the murderers and the secret murderers and kind of, but not, also not really. And oh my God. <laughs> yeah, apparently, if you haven't seen this, apparently there's a director's cut that's better. The intro commentary the voiceover that they give is just there's aliens that abducted a bunch yes. of people and they mess with our memory it explains the entire plot and then the movie yes. tries to build up this mystery so if you get the non-director's cut just fast forward a few seconds till after the first pause there yeah just go to the credit scene sequence yes yeah and, uh, or mute mute it until that point yeah the one works you know because um, then you get a much better experience overall. So what's interesting with this, I remember this movie and I remember really, really liking it and watching it again. I still really like it and I'm trying to figure out why. So what is it that made you want to pick this one? Well, I guess part of the reason was that when I first heard about it, I was very kind of in the, into the aesthetics of it, uh, you know, that, that this movie sort of presents. This sort of dark noir you know, weird stuff going on at the same time sort of thing. Uh, so not quite Lovecraftian, though there are tentacle monsters, uh, but very much, a, I'm not sure how to other, otherwise describe it, honestly. Well, it is a, like, dark sci-fi, like, not cyberpunk, because it doesn't have the neon and things, but that kind of mm -hmm. gritty punk aesthetic mixed with a lot of noir aesthetics in what they described as a timeless city. So it's a generalized city. It's very obviously New York-y, but mm -hmm. that takes elements from anywhere between the 1940s and 70s and just kind of mashes yes. them all together. Different building styles, different sort of, you know, ways things work. Uh, you know, the automat's very like 40s, 50s sort of thing there. You know, the hotel where he start, wakes up is like this big marquee thing out front. And, uh, you know, that's kind of like the only neon you see. Uh, and it's it's sort of this weird mashup that's, you know, everything's sort of cloaked in shadow as well. And so everything is has sort of a, I guess, a nightmarish quality to it. That is, you know, there could be anything sort of creeping out there in that city. Everything's sort of, you're, you're co both cozy, but exposed at the same time. Does that make sense? The city was, was like, intentionally off-putting which fit with their noir aesthetic really well. The the something weird to me was uh, I basically noticed it at the time because the movie feels like it moves really, really, really fast. But mm -hmm. apparently this movie like holds the current record for average cuts per second huh. because it, it cuts on average every 1.6 seconds. Well, I guess to a certain degree, especially with like the memory recall bits, uh, which I didn't go into much detail in the synopsis there, uh, the, uh, yeah, it's very like, okay, here's like half, like not even half a second of footage. And then you immediately go into the different memory, a different, you know, bit of a uh, different scene there. Uh, but even if you count those out, there's still a lot of fast stuff going on here. Like when John's trying to figure out what his first name is, like John, James, Justin, Jeff, 
Uh, it's just sort of cutting back and forth between him sort of walking different directions with each name. Yeah, it's very disorienting. And it's good to get you into kind of the disorientation of the character with losing your memory and trying to figure out, piece everything together. I guess my energy today is sort of reflecting that to a certain degree. <laughs> I just thought it was interesting because I, I still really enjoy the movie. And I think a lot of it is stylistic because I was watching it trying to be very critical to think of things to bring up in the episode. They, they have like one or two ideas in here, but they don't really explore them or comment on them in any way. They're just kind of a hanging device for the plot. Like the why of this particular sort of setup? Yeah, like why are the, the aliens have almost no motivation for what they're doing. Yeah, a knowable motivation. They keep commenting on like, oh, they're trying to find out what makes humans human, but the movie doesn't really do any particular exploration of that, aside from mentioning that they're looking in the wrong place. But what does that even mean? Like, it gives you some things to think about, but the movie isn't really exploring the ideas in itself. The, I guess to a certain extent, the strangers, the aliens there, are sort of intentionally kept uh, a certain amount of mystery to them, even in the non-director's cut. That there is, you know, the ideas that were sort of posed about what they're actually looking for are coming from human perspectives. Human perspectives that have also had their memories erased or messed with. So what's the actual truth there? Is this actually looking for, quote, the human soul? Or is that just sort of his best guess for Dr. Schraber? Yeah, it's kind of vague on there. Since you mentioned Schraber, though, something that I stumbled on when I was looking through this, Schraber is named after a... Mm -hmm. uh, a German jurist. ...who lived in the 1800s. Uh, 1842 to 1911. I might have a Wikipedia article open. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he wrote a pretty famous book that was like a seminal work of uh, psychology that was interpreted by Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung. Uh, memories of my nervous illness. And I cannot pronounce the German version. Yeah, so he had basically a psychotic break and a lot of hallucinations and things and wrote a book during that. I guess there was technically a, a subtitle that kind of, you know, was questioning, like, being imprisoned for this sort of thing. Because he was kind of put in asylum for a while. And... One of the interesting things with this is he wanted, according to some of the stuff I was reading anyway, he wanted to write the book not necessarily to like document what it was like having this mental experience, which was part of it, mm -hmm. but that the mental experience itself gave him a feeling of profound truths he had learned about the universe that he needed to share with people. I got the answers now. It's, it's pretty great, guys. So there's like God and like the forces in heaven and these nerve connections and divine race thing going on, right? Yeah, and it's actually really interesting. Like there's a, you can't read the whole thing. There's a bit of a, there's like a hundred page preview, but it's really chopped up on one of the Google things that I was skimming. And so there's some interesting stuff in there. I guess a little hard to buy though, but he still wanted to get his message out. So here, have a book. So that's uh, the the origin of Dr. Schraber's name there. So uh, you want to talk about any about the interpretations of uh, that whole uh, experience there he had? Uh, I mean, the the two in the interpretations in the time period were like very predictable. <laughs> yeah, like oh, this is your mother and this is your father and uh, bye. You know, Freud thought it was latent homosexual repression, like Freud does. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, part of uh, Schraber's uh, you know, things he mentioned was uh, like uh, having, uh, was it dreams or something like that about being, uh, having sexual relations like uh, as a woman? Well, he got, I think God made him pregnant or something. Oh, okay. I missed that part. <laughs> uh, 
And so I guess it's very easy for Freud. It's like, oh, this is clearly what's going on. We don't have to think about this very hard at all. Mm-hmm. Folks that came by later that uh, suggested that some of the stuff he talked about was remembering things from his childhood that his you know parents might have did, his dad. Oh, yeah. This guy had like the worst father. Yeah. You know, you must discipline children to make them productive members of society by doing all this horrible stuff to them. Well, the guy was a well-renowned child-rearing expert. In, you know, the 1800s for, Mm -hmm. you know, for how scary that is. Yeah, so he had things of like strapping children upright in chairs for proper posture. Children should be unwaveringly obedient to their parents, including infants. If your child is crying, that's a problem. Uh, uh, it means they're probably hungry. No, it means they're disobeying you. <laughs> uh, this sort of thing, I always, always remember that one episode of The Simpsons where they uh, bring in these uh, posture-correcting uh, chairs to eliminate slouching by the year 3000. <laughs> and they're just, they just look like torture devices. So, uh, yeah, uh, Schreiber kind of had a rough time both as, you know, you know, as a child and uh, when he got older uh, with his, uh, you know, his mental uh, situation there. And uh, he eventually died in uh, while in being held, correct? I think so. Which, I mean, a lot of people did. The asi- a lot of the asylum system was not amazing. Kind of the place you put people to make them just not be part of your life anymore. They got overcrowded and things. The original plan of that kind of system wasn't bad. It was like, give people a nice, calming environment filled with nature. Mm-hmm. And then they just got mismanaged and overcrowded. Yep. And so suddenly this... Being around nature is being around everyone else who wanted to be here or Mm -hmm. was put here or, you know. So I had like three ideas for this and I don't know what you want to get to. There's an interesting thing around the getting back to nature thing as it relates to cities or Mm -hmm. the movie is all about memory. So we could talk about those for a bit or not both. What is the human soul? Well, let's start with the first two. I'll have to think about the last one. (laughs) So uh, this uh, movie basically takes place almost entirely in a built-up city sort of environment. There is no trees. There is no green space. There is nothing but buildings, streets, and sidewalks and subways, I guess. Uh, And so the entire movie, John is looking for Shell Beach, this place that has grass, it has sea, it has open space, it has... You know, a few houses, but they're like not on top of each other or uh, packed together. You're looking for, uh, I, I guess, a, a more pastoral environment. And a somewhat interesting thing, especially since the city is very New Yorky, because that's where noir aesthetic kind of dictates things be, is in old tiny Manhattan. Yep. Shell Beach is Coney Island. Yep. The, the the aesthetic, the look of the thing, the the billboard, it's Coney Island. The XP. <laughs> <laughs> So, so yeah, I've never been to Coney Island. How is it? I have not either, actually. I've lived here for almost 10 years and I've still not been to Coney Island. Um, and right now might not be a very good time to do it either. So. Yeah. Okay. So, so no, no first time. The interesting thing with having that kind of city aesthetic and the kind of central driving character motivation that we're given for our lead is to get out of the city and to Coney Island as an escape from the city mm-hmm. is that um, around the like kind of the mid to late 1800s, uh, especially in cities like New York, you had this kind of civil societal theory that a lot of the problems that you got in cities, the poverty and the crime rate and all of the things that rich people were worried about living here were directly caused by living in the city itself. So do we uh, you know, fix the city and hopefully that fixes the people? Or do we, you know, 
put the people elsewhere. A lot of people of the time, very famously a guy named Frederick Olmsted, who was became a very, very influential park designer, decided that what we needed to do was introduce nature into cities. So he very famously created Central Park in Manhattan. A big strip of land right down the middle of the island. Which, you know... A cynic might say, if you build a massive green space right on top of where a poor black community lives, suddenly all the poor people went somewhere. Well, you know. Look at that. That thing that the rich people were all worried about is no longer here. But also at the same time that uh, that was happening, they were building some like ways to get to Coney Island, which at the time was not was like being built up it it turned into the city escape sort of area and then it got a bunch of theme parks and things built on it and sideshow attractions and all the things that like coney island is like somewhat famous for today even though a lot of that kind of dropped off and there's been a recent resurgence theme park rides things like that yeah so the idea that that the escape from the city is something that would be necessary for one's mental health is a very very old idea and kind of stems from this uh, basically blaming the lack of nature inside of cities for the societal problems of the city. It's a uh, urban planning of the most level zero sort, really. And what's kind of interesting, you could read this movie from an urban planner perspective. Well, yeah. Because the end of the movie is Murdoch basically becomes the ultimate urban planner. He's now the super mayor. His power is to remake the city. Yeah, he literally says he's going to fix things. So you, you, you see bricks and mortar flying up and buildings reassembling themselves. And then he makes the you know, uh, shell beach and all that sort of stuff. It's very much a he is changing the city based on the plan that he has, which is, I guess, to have shell beach. Well, I guess it is kind of worth noting that the shell beach sort of aesthetic uh, is not the erudite, sophisticated kind of getting out to nature. It's a very, like, this is what working class people would have gotten to, would have gone out to the beach and gone to the boardwalk and, you know, had fun out there in these, like, weirdly integrated spaces for the time anyway, even though there were right next door to some of the more famous Coney Island beaches, there were, like, segregated areas for rich people that... The places that wound up being famous were like the main beach where all of the fair attractions and sideshows and gambling establishments were. That was weirdly integrated for the 1800s. It's like, oh, everybody's money's good here. So let's just have you guys hang out here. Give us more money, please. <laughs> Spend it all here, please. I'm, I'm not in any way an expert on Coney Island. So I'm going to let you, you know, if you have any other de- important details there, I'll uh, let you, uh, you know, put them in now. Well, that was it. I was barely, and I barely <laughs> knew anything about Coney Island and I coincidentally stumbled upon a history thing the other day. It was like, oh, this seems relevant. Uh, I'm sure Nella has done some videos about Coney Island at some <laughs> point. She does good stuff. <laughs> um, but um, so, you know, there is, I guess in the urban design sort of thing is, uh, yeah, it, it kind of makes me wonder, like, okay, what is he going to be doing after the movie? You know, is is he is that going to be it? Is he, is he going to be changing the city in a massive fashion otherwise? It's not entirely clear, other than now we have sunlight. Yeah, one of the things that would have been really interesting, like, this is an action sci-fi movie, so they ended it when the action part was done. But the actual, like, heady sci-fi part would have been the aftermath. Yep. 
Like, what do you do with this artificial space that has all these people in it who have no idea who they are? Yes, because, <laughs> you know, once again, you know, everyone's experiences in this city have been fabricated. So do you just let the fabrications play out and things, hope things just kind of work out? Or is there going to be maybe some sort of, you know, upcoming disaster if we don't change up something or let people in uh, on the, the whole ruse of it? Uh, and so, you know, do you try to let the artificial society continue as is, or do you start to try to change it in order to, you know, save it from some, uh, something horrible happening? Well, there's definitely going to be some kind of disaster because they said earlier on that the strangers have a massively longer lifespan than a human. They said that it takes several lifetimes to master their tuning. Uh, so having this one guy who's the only person that can interact with the machines that run the place with a human lifespan. Yes. Hope they're not having kids, because um, otherwise it could be a problem. Mm-hmm. There was a couple kids in the uh, the rich people's, or working class people, that became rich people's place. Yeah, they showed kids. They showed both live kids and dead kids. Yes. Uh, interesting note, uh, the uh, child stranger is actually played by two different actors. Yeah. Twins. This is not uncommon when you're dealing with younger child actors. So that's an interesting bit of trivia there. Um, corpses. Don't don't walk around in them, guys. It's creepy. <laughs> so should we go on to amnesia and memory things? Oh, uh, uh, yeah. Let's let's go and move on. Uh, otherwise, we're going to talk about Richard O'Brien some more because <laughs> apparently Mr. Hand's role was like written for him. Yes, very specifically. And also, the yes. kids who played Mr. Sleep were big fans of Rocky Horror Picture Show. <laughs> so they got to hang out. It's pretty sweet. <laughs> yeah. So the so memory, memory thing. It's very interesting because they, they basically present the main character as what you'd basically call an amnesiac. He can't remember anything about his life. But as we know from a lot of examples of this, and we're getting a lot of information from uh, Oliver Sacks' books, who writes a lot of very famous, well-known uh, psychology, like anecdotal psychology books about interesting people that he's worked with. Uh, including a lot of uh, people who have one form of amnesia or another, because there's a multitude of different ways you can develop amnesia. And if you like can forget everything, you can have like something called transitory amnesia, where you just forget stuff for a few hours and then you're back normal and you know doesn't affect the rest of your life at all. You can remember your past, but not form new memories. You can forget your past and form new me- memories. There's just a massive multitude of, of amnesia types. Kind of suck to have like multiple types at the same time. Like I can remember everything between when I turned, uh, you know, you know, twenty eight, and uh, then nothing after thirty five. Well, there was like one guy who at least who just like kept uh, reliving this. Like he didn't relive it, but like get updated on what was going on every day. Get reminded that he was living in a new time, but then every day he woke up and thought it was like nineteen thirty something. That would be a little disorienting, yes. Mm-hmm. The really, really interesting things that you get once the studying of amnesia is there seem to be a lot of different kinds of memory. Because mm-hmm. what you're usually dealing with with amnesia is episodic or autobiographical memory. So the what, who, what, where, whens. So like even Murdoch in this movie, he can't remember his name. He doesn't know where he's from, who he is, his childhood. He knows how to speak English. He knows how to walk. He knows how to avoid the police. He even winds up smoking at one point. I guess I'm a smoker, so I'm going to smoke because I've got the compulsion and don't remember how to do this. I remember, or, or it just seems like it makes sense or something like that. Sort of the, the smoker's compulsion. 
yeah. strikes. And there is a uh, there is something where you lose the ability to speak. Uh, you could say that you kind of forget how to talk, but it's not considered amnesia. It's a different thing I'm forgetting the term for right now. So you can basically lose the ability to speak. You forget how. It's not exactly forgetting. You lose some sort of connection that lets you connect concepts to words. So there's sort of like a, a hardwired structural skill sort of memory and memories that are you know the autobiographical sort of stuff well the interesting thing is it's not hardwired at all mm -hmm. so what they were describing in one of these things was uh, procedural memories which is your memory basically of how to do stuff like how to do things in order uh one of the anecdotes from this one book is a guy who yeah. was a composer musician conductor he could just do a lot of amazing music stuff. Got basically total amnesia, didn't really remember his past, could not form new memories. If you put him down in front of the piano and gave him sheet music and told him to play it, he could play it. But he didn't remember that he knew how to read music or play music. So it was still in there somehow. It was just not quite expect himself to remember it. But also, this is not just you have the skills that you had when you became amnesiac because they also practiced new skills with him. And he learned the new skills even though he had absolutely no memory of practicing them. And they were still being able to create some sort of memory, just not all the memory. Yeah, and there was a guy who, like, for example, if you asked him how you make a cup of coffee, he wouldn't be able to tell you. Or, like, asked him, where do you keep the coffee? Where are the mugs? He couldn't remember if you asked him to make a cup of coffee he'd go to the kitchen and make a cup of coffee yep <laughs> uh i guess this kind of reminds me of uh you know how in some fiction they express you know it's like yes you have the power to psychically bend this thing but you don't try to bend the spoon no that's impossible just remember to that it's it's time for it to bend and then it bends yeah stop trying so hard <laughs> the final thing just as this, this one was really fascinating a woman who couldn't form new memories and one visiting psychologist went to shake her hand and concealed a like pin in his hand and pricked her on the hand and then the next time he was there he showed up a couple more times and she wouldn't shake his hand <laughs> even though she couldn't remember the event and when they asked her about it she would either say well can't i not shake someone's hand if i want to and then eventually like sometimes hands contain pins so you are forming new memories you are like you're learning new things you are still gaining information about the world you are still you know learning that one is uh what they were calling a emotional memory or an implicit memory like something connected to an emotional response like a trauma reaction yeah. and those can continue going even though your narrative memories seem to no longer be functioning. And, uh, we, we've talked a bit about how, you know, narrative memory is to a certain extent sort of associative. You know, when, when you are directly asked the questions, how do you make this cup of coffee? You kind of dig back and then present to yourself the whole procedure as opposed to when you're actually doing it, you're to a certain degree on autopilot. Your skill are, is uh, proceeding as it has been practiced. Yes, your memories aren't like a scanner. Like, that just takes information, sets it out. The best description that I've ever heard, which I'll repeat for anyone who hasn't heard whichever show that was, you know, 15-something episodes ago. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, you know, if you take a digital photograph of a building, 
it takes every single line of the building and assigns it a position and a color and then recreates it that way. So every single detail of the building is represented. If you were remembering a building, you go, well, there was a corner there, a corner there, a corner there, a window here. It was made largely of brick. There you go. I guess in some ways it's sort of like taking the Fourier transform of a situation. Break it down to a few key important details, then you can reconstruct uh, the rest of it. But if you're unable to reconstruct you know, reconstruct that in a sort of conscious fashion, you're not able to explain it to somebody else, yes. even if you still have the memories inside you. And there's plenty of things with like people who had temporary amnesias that just happen. It's just a thing that can happen. It's very, very, very rare. Sometimes it happens to like someone once in their lifetime. It seems to be very unharmful, but you just can't remember form memories for a couple hours. Happened to one guy while he was doing a gallbladder surgery. Whoops. And he like kept asking if he'd taken the gallbladder out and what he was doing there and why he was there. But like the nurse who was assisting him saw that he could still do the surgery. He was still doing everything he needed to. So she just coached him the rest of the way through it. It went fine. Patient lived. He had no memory of performing the surgery. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be a little unsettling. It's like, wait, uh, what's going on here? My hands are inside somebody. Mm-hmm. And not, not, not quite the thing you want to be, uh, you know, sort of coming into. So this interesting idea that, like, you're messing with someone's memory to try to find the essential themness of the person. But, like, we don't know how memory works. We have this one form of memory. What we focus on is memory. But obviously all the other stuff could be considered memory, too. I guess sort of thinking back to the movie, to a certain degree, they seem to be generally keeping up uh, how people's relationship to each other, you know, in a sort of, uh, you know, a, com- uh, a constant-ish sort of uh, fashion. If they, you know, the, 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 the couple that was, you know, sort of more working class suddenly becoming much more well-off, they're still together. They could have been pulled apart and, you know, put somewhere else entirely. But uh, so maybe the uh, you know, in the movie, they're sort of making use of that emotional connection uh, sort of memory. Uh, as they sort of change around the details uh, on top of that. Or possibly it's the thing they don't understand that they're trying to get around, or they have some sort of implicit misunderstanding of how things work that makes them unable to even formulate a proper experiment based on our psychology. Maybe the strangers don't know what the hell they're doing, and they're just kind of flailing around in the dark. But that gets to the actual thing that I think could be interesting is at least a brief discussion, because, you know, there's several philosophical veins of thought around this issue, But nothing, like, of course, we haven't come up with an actual concrete answer for this. And this seems to be the thing that the movie itself wants to explore, even though it isn't really trying to come up with much of a definition of this either. What is it that makes a person that person? The essential element of the you. Because the the strangers themselves are mentioned to have sort of group consciousness, that they lack a sense of individuality, even if, like, each individual one seems to have a personality yeah and we can i'll go over very quickly the three kind of dominant philosophical veins of thought here with very brief synopsis the continuity of memory basically you are the same person that you used to be because you remember that person who you used to be and you remember all the steps that got you from there to here a to b to c and hope you never sleep (laughs) you also have the kind of body theory which is you are your body no matter what's in there so you're the same body that you used to be so because the body itself has remained contiguous you have remained contiguous so uh don't lose too much skin cells too quickly then you also wind up with identity itself is an illusion that we have placed upon reality and does not in fact exist 
So your your entire brain function is a, a, a waveform that can be, uh, you know, technically associated with all wave functions of the universe. So don't worry about it. Yeah, well, the you from yesterday, there's no particular concrete reason that's still the you now. You just, you're just using that guy's memories, you know. You, the, the, the thing that was he or he or she or whatever, or, you know, neither one, um, you know, the, that, that person that was you before is dead it's gone but there's leftovers that you can make use of to paraphrase the terry pratchett novel thief of time i remember yesterday but the memory is in my head now did yesterday really happen or is it only the memories that exist i think we're touching on some aphalos uh hypothesis here a little bit also, I'm not going to stop recording because this is just random, but there seems to be a fireworks show happening in my neighborhood. It's a summer thing in Brooklyn, so I apologize if there's explosion noise. So, well, they're just celebrating Dark City, you know? Yeah. You know, they're really excited. Word I just butchered trying to pronounce here uh, is uh, touches is, is a sometimes derided as last Thursdayism, hmm. uh, which is sort of the cosmic version of that, where, you know, everything that is was actually created last Thursday or five minutes ago. And the, you know, it just happens that you remember all this stuff and that, that previous existence never happened. It just, you think it does. Sort of, it's an illusion of something. Mm-hmm. And you have no particular way of knowing this. It's uh, uh, unverifiable and un- untestable. So mm-hmm. it's one of those things I don't really worry about. <laughs> yeah, I think that the central thing does come into how we interact with the world and each other. There's a very famous kind of thought experiment with this um, that is ancient Greek so I guess I should mention the ancient Greek thing that kind of one of the older theories I could find, because we didn't start recording philosophy until ancient Greece in the Western world. I'm sure there's older stuff and other stuff, but one of the older kind of soul ideas I could find, because for it's pretty well accepted even in a non-religious sense that the whatever essential unis that exists is referred to as the soul, not necessarily implying a religious context. Ultimate element that that ideal of the soul and as far as i can tell one of the oldest ideas of something soul or soul adjacent uh comes from ancient greece and the kind of platonic idea of the thing that is you that is unchangeable the immutable self the psyche in a word and that kind of leads to this fairly famous sort of thought experiment um also kind of ancient greek which is if um, if you take the Argo and it needs repairs and you replace the sail and then you replace the rudder and then you replace the mast and then you replace the planks one by one, eventually you've replaced every part of the boat. So is it the same boat? Good question. How do you define boat? <laughs> I was discussing this with someone and I think we came up with a pretty useful idea that something maintains the continuity for ourselves because the way that humans, this is really about how we are interacting with the world. So you could say that the boat has a soul because it has it has a thing that we have assigned it a meaning. The boat has a meaning. We look at this boat, we associate the meaning, we go this boat carries the meaning of the Argo. And that meaning stays with the boat even if the parts get replaced because we have associated that meaning with the boat for ourselves so it's a majority association with this bit of matter even as parts of it are slowly inter- you know interchanged with other bits. it's not even necessarily a majority it like can be any- even like a single person can say this is my you know this is my knife 
and nobody else cares about this thing, but like it's still mine, even if I replace the blade and the handle. Very much a sort of a construct that we are sort of applying to a arrangement of items, an arrangement of objects. And so again, when you're kind of turning this back onto the self, that's kind of how we just sort of implicitly treat it most of the time. I was kind of was thinking that we've tied this in a lot with how we relate to not only the universe around us generally, but also human relationships, because relationships to us are so fundamentally important. And you can't maintain relationships without that kind of continuity. What is a friendship if you're not with someone constantly forever? Yeah. There's these ideas that are that we construct is as far as our, our interactions go that are much larger than you know, you know a a very I guess fundamental definition of this thing is this and it is pure and immutable. It is something that is separate that we cannot, you know, hope to sort of pull apart uh, and it will always be there because it is always this and it's unchanging. Things are a little more, I guess, soft than that, but they are still sort of being generated from us internally. And what's really interesting, especially when you're interacting with other people, we put a lot of this emphasis on the emotional and procedural memory less so on the narrative memory because like when you hang out with a friend you haven't seen in a long time it's like oh they still act the same they still do this the same way like i remember how they smile or how they laugh or how they make this thing uh and if that drastically changes because of something else that was going on in their lives you go like oh you don't act like the same person anymore something has happened uh, you know just should i be concerned should i be angry should i be something else you sort of have a, a complicated reaction when that happens. And uh, you, know, you might not be able to get the same enjoyment as you had before. And that's kind of sad. Mm-hmm. This is kind of getting into a difference between like a Cartesian way of uh, philosophy, which is kind of items exist and carry an implicit true meaning with themselves. And all of the meaning we find in the universe is learning about the actual like external truths around us. So where you are in the Cartesian plan, got it. And a phenomenological philosophy, which is the meaning that an object carries is not implicit to the object, but is brought to the object, colored by your own experiences with it. So the quantum mechanics version. Sort of, yeah. You, <laughs> Your interaction with the object changes how you feel about the object. The, this um, There was a pretty good concise example i just read which is a kid looks at a candle flame goes that is pretty i want to touch it and they touch it and they get burned and now instead of seeing it as pretty they see it as hostile Mm -hmm. it's now a danger not because they learned something about that flame like people would look at that and go like well the kid didn't know it was hot and now they know it's hot but for the child themselves it actually just completely changed the way that they perceive fire the meaning that they take from seeing the object has altered. That's the, not the specific data points, but the overall impression. Which is an interesting one because it does spread. It's not just, hey, now you know that this candle's hot. But like, if you're only doing it cartesianally, maybe that candle's not hot because you haven't Mm -hmm. tested that candle. So you have to test all the candles now. This one is your implicit understanding of fire itself as a meaning has changed. I'm, I'm suddenly reminded of that. Uh, I think it's XKCD comic where, you know, you, you know, it's like different people testing, you know, like touching an object that's like has electric shock on it. And like the scientist will keep trying to touch it <laughs> to make sure it still gives you a shock. <laughs> Cause you know, it could still, it could change its, its, its state. It could become not a burning candle that hurts you when you touch it. It could be something that makes you, 
makes you feel good instead. So I have to keep touching it then. Mm -hmm. More data. (laughs) So a lot of what we're bringing to this is kind of our understanding of someone else's continuity or another object's continuity. We still ascribe the same meaning to the object or the person, even though like maybe intellectually we know that the last time I saw this person was however many years ago and, you know, biologically all your cells change over and they've had a lot more experiences and they're completely different now. But because I carry that meaningful continuity through, they're still the same person. I guess kind of going back to the movie then, uh, is Anna and Emma the same person? Well, see, that's the thing that they get with the (laughs) movie is they want to imply that she is, but they don't want to explore whether she is. (laughs) Because it's right at the end of this movie. It's like, oh, uh, she's Anna now. Okay, um, this could be awkward. But John's going to try to, like, get uh, friendly with her all the same. Well, I did enjoy that she was just there. Like, she was just kind of drawn to the place herself. He didn't go in and go like, now I shall have a relationship with this woman because I found her hot before. It's like, well, I'm going to go to Shell Beach because it seems like a neat place. And they leave it a little bit open on whether she's being friendly or she still has feelings for him. You sort of, you know, interpret it as you like, really. Though it's still a little bit shitty how they treated her as a character because she, like... Generally. You could remove her from the story and make absolutely no difference to what was going on. I guess there's, like, maybe one or two plot points she's kind of needed for, but not even really then if you just change a couple other things. It also unfortunately falls into that same noir trope of treating sex workers very, very horribly. Yep. It's like, well, you're, uh... Selling your body, so we have to, like, treat you like an object. Uh Uh-oh. Well, in fact, the first person who shows up is, like, she's the first person who's nice to him in the entire story. Mm -hmm. And then later, they're like, well, we put her there to die, and she hasn't died, so she has to die. Dang it, Mr. Hand, why do you have to be a murderer? I guess he programmed himself to be that way. Whoops. And they never actually go into exploring whether or not, you know, Murdoch would have become a murderer if they'd completed the memory thing, or what he was before this. Well, to a certain extent, that is kind of the question that the, the strangers are asking, but we as the audience aren't supposed to be necessarily, you know, exploring that. Yeah. That, that the exploration of that whole question is maybe beside the point, that it is something else entirely that is, you know, a not the right move to be even sort of, you know, you know at, doing, not even the right question to be asking. I might have to think about this some more. <laughs> yeah, I've been recently, like, I just started a... Uh buddhism book and a lot of the central things is like stop trying not to be scared of things and stop trying so hard (laughs) (laughs) you know uh, you don't have to necessarily break everything down to its finest components you can take a bigger view of things and just sort of let it flow through you i guess it's kind of more of the point of the movie independent of what john would have ended up doing if he had all the memories uh, he was supposed to get the answer to if he would have kept killing or not is not an important answer to have. I thought it was interesting, and I don't, I do not mean this as a criticism of the movie, because I really, really enjoy the movie for its tone and how it's putting things out. It's a very good movie. But I thought it was interesting that so many people cite this as either their favorite or one of their favorite movies, even though it falls into like every narrative problem that people usually cite with why they dislike movies yep <laughs> you know, it's like this was really convenient that this yeah, you know, this thing happened like this yeah. you know, this relationship is it's here. overly convenient it's filled with plot holes the 
the antagonists have basically no motivation beyond being antagonists. The protagonist is a completely neutral non-entity who has things happen to him the entire time and has no actual like influence on the story itself. To a certain extent, it's about his journey to getting that kind of influence, even though it's kind of given to him. Yeah, that's the, yeah. <laughs> it's given to him by another character, and it's like, okay, you're God now. All right, I'm God. Sweet. <laughs> now I'm also having flashbacks to uh, Bioshock Infinite. Mm. <laughs> anyway, uh, so I think that touched on most of the stuff I wanted to uh, sort of poke at. I guess there's also maybe some things about uh, erasing memories, like intentionally, you could poke at, but uh, I didn't get a good, much good as far as uh, research there. Just yeah. that it's something people have sort of looked at. Uh, it's like, yeah. Let's say we have like a drug addict and they're only finding themselves relapsing when they run into objects or situations that remind them of their, you know, what, you know, when they were on, you know, on their, their drug habit previously. So if we could figure out a way to sort of remove that uh, specific, you know, association in their brain, like in a very mechanical sort of fashion, maybe we could help them uh, prevent them from having a, a relapse or something like that. But still very basic research is, you know, barely there so well since memories are like an emergent system of a bunch of interconnective parts the only thing we've ever been able to reliably do is kind of blank out the last 15 to 20 minutes or so usually via like an electric shock or something or specific drugs that prevent you from forming memories during the time period where you're on them like a whole bunch of alcohol. Yeah, that's a different thing. I hadn't gotten to that part of the <laughs> sax book that I was skimming through. There has been, you know, also thinking about, it's like, okay, maybe we can, like, rewire the neurons, but we're not very good at even knowing what they're doing generally. So probably not a good idea to do Then we can't anyway. It's all, also to experiment uh, with that sort of thing is highly unethical. So, you know, it's like, well, if we break something, uh, sorry, it's now broken forever. And there's even some question given how... The implicit emotional memory and the procedural memory don't seem to have anything to do with the episodic memory. Whether the stuff we're doing to blank out episodic memory has any effect on the other memories, which is kind of troubling when you're talking about something like surgery. Yes. So uh, it's kind of we don't know enough about how things actually work to really be in a position to, you know, once again, uh, even ask the right questions about what we should be doing here. So, uh so maybe erasing memories is kind of a moot point right now. So, uh, so yeah, don't even have to go into the ethics of that then. Hooray! Yeah, is it ethical to remove someone's memories? To like, Would it be ethical to remove someone's memory of being a drug addict? Because it would prevent them from relapsing? But then they don't, I don't know, maybe the same things would happen again because they don't remember them and can't avoid them in the future. Yes, <laughs> they have lost the memory of their drug addiction, so... They don't know how terrible it was. They fall right back into it. Oh, God. Also, I don't want to get into this tangent again, but that is such a gross misunderstanding of how drug addiction functions yeah. <laughs> or where it comes from or the like. Yes. purpose it is serving for the people who are doing it. Let's mm -hmm. stop. Stop it. So it's, it's a whole mess. <laughs> and uh, this sort of thrust of things of, uh, you know, editing memories for that purpose is kind of... Well, uh, the whole it's it's a pile of cards that have already kind of fallen apart well that gets into your whole is it ethical to alter someone's memories so they don't remember a horrible past trauma they went through because mm -hmm. who would say no to that but is it right to do 
And what does it say about the horrible thing itself? If you can make people not remember it, does the horrible thing matter anymore? It's like, oh yes, now my life is perfect because I don't remember that horrible thing anymore. So it's okay for you to have horrible things happen to people now? Yeah, it doesn't matter if horrible things happen to anyone because you can just make them forget them. So who cares? That kind of sucks. There's a lot of weird little uh, moral implications you get into with this stuff. But don't worry, we'll have uh, some uh, next generation episodes to uh, cover some of this, I think. Yeah, I think so. It's probably <laughs> we've rambled on to other random tiny points long enough that it's going to get over to the galaxy's favorite game show! Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the galaxy's favorite game show and... There's some creepy guys out my window. They're just kind of floating there, but uh, I think they're here to watch the show, so it should be fine. This isn't Welcome to Night Vale. At least I hope not. <laughs> um, so uh, we got got some contestants who have been racking up a few points again here, uh, and uh, we got some winners to be uh, you know getting some prizes here. So our first one is the Hard Drive Brain Prize, which goes out to all the humans in the city because they've had their heads completely rewritten, apparently, like many, many times over. Also to Mr. Hand for getting the same treatment and uh, having Mr. Murdoch on his mind. What do they win collectively, uh, Gepwin? They all win some solid state storage because I think this whole liquid-based thing that wound up spilling everywhere and losing everyone's memories wasn't a great idea. Hmm, true. Because you know, now there's a whole soup of memories down here and like, if you drink it, maybe you'll think you were a, the, the circus entertainer who was also a stockbroker. I should have just done a freezer. Because if you have a liquid and you put it in a freezer, it becomes solid state storage. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Let's give these people a, a freezer. Uh, speaking of uh, chilly people, uh, the uh, our second and third prize go to the same group of people. The Puppet Masters and One Mind, One Purpose prizes. Which goes to the strangers for using the dead as vessels and also orchestrating that whole city's existence and creating it and stuff like that. But also for that whole group memory thing. What do they win, Gepwin? They win a rewrite of The Walking Dead because that series ran itself to the ground. But this is a much better way to do zombies. Hive mind zombies seem like something we haven't done enough with. Yeah, they're all organizing and slowly shambling around and then they collectively see <gasps> fresh meat over there. And so they all turn at the same time and go, hi. Our fourth prize here is the Destruction of the Self Prize, which goes to Dr. Schreiber for erasing everything about himself other than his skills as a psychologist. What does he win, Gepwin? Dr. Schreiber wins the, another therapist. They are going to need more than one in this town. He's the only one who remembers all the horrible things that he did. So... He might need some help here. So, uh, uh, Dr. Schreiber, uh, I guess it's time to start educating some people about psychology then. Our next prize is the Reluctant Messiah Prize, which goes out to John Murdoch for not even knowing who he is, let alone how he's supposed to change the world. Jeepers, man. I'm just a guy. What does he win, Gepwin? He wins some carpentry skills in a bush that's on fire and maybe one of those shepherd crook things. Can, I, can we get any more religious iconography in here? Like, he already had the Jesus pose thing for a bit. Yeah, because it was all the tables, all like arms out and legs down and... And then you kind of like, well, I'm now going to not, I'm going to like rise again from the table here. Yeah. Can we start using something that's not the Jesus pose? It's getting played out. And there's a lot of other messiahs. Yes. <laughs> in fact, even in Judeo-Christianism, you know, there is uh, yeah, other messiahs that are mentioned at various points there. Anyway, our last prize is the Children of the Damned prize, which goes out to the creepy Mr. Sleep. Because who the heck 
opts to use a dead child as your body as you walk around and be creepy at people. Sorry, jeepers. Captain, what, what, is, what is this abomination win? They want a hotel, the tricycle and things, because they're twins. So come play with us in our dark city. Ah, um, I'm scared, Gepwin. Um, take us away, please. Yes, thank you, all of our horrible undead contestants. Grab some disinfectant on your way out. Wipe down. Wash your hands, people. And thank you all for joining us on the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show. I'm exhausted. All right, we were talking about Mr. Sleep a little bit ago. It was like, they're the kid and they're the small one, but they basically don't say anything. They like keep saying single word sentences and just making weird mm-hmm. noises. So they had yes. like just a little bit of the consciousness left over and they're just like, I don't know, put it in the <laughs> tiny one. <laughs> you always get that one little bit left over. Just grab a small one. Yeah, it's just, uh, just excess here. You know, it's, it's fine. <laughs> You're small, it's small, it works out. <laughs> oh, but also, oh, I didn't even mention the, 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 the teeth clacking that it occasionally, and, uh, including Mr. Sleep. It's like, it's like, ah. Yeah, they didn't know, I don't know, they didn't They didn't know what they wanted to do with some of these characters. Why was Mr. Sleep biting people? <laughs> Mr. Sleep's kind of creepy. I know I keep saying creepy, but it's true. All right, well, next week we get to move on to a different kind of creepy. Oh, no. We're going back to Star Trek with an episode called Requiem for Mythology. Methuselah. Wait, Methuselah finally died? Maybe, yeah. Okay. So, I mean, yeah, as the name, they meet Methuselah, because that, because he's an immortal alien, because of course he is. They're going to keep running into immortals for the rest of the series, aren't they? Yeah, and as far as I've been able to tell, because I haven't seen this episode, but I've heard of it, Kirk falls in love with his wife. That seems to be basically the entire thing. Whoops. Kirk, um, can you learn how to maybe, I don't know, keep it in the pants? No, that wouldn't be Kirk. Kirk's not Kirk who's doing that. True. Hmm. I don't know. Maybe maybe, maybe McCoy could fall in love again. I, I know it was novel that one time, but come on. Yeah, somebody else could. I mean, it's, they're just taking... Like, basically, all they're doing when they write other romances on this show is taking the word Kirk and changing it out for McCoy or Scotty. It still is awkward. <laughs> it's not like anybody else, like... Uh, does anything different or treats people any better kind of cookie cutter anywho that's that's next week on watchers of tomorrow you know we've only got yeah. six episodes of this left holy smokes what are we gonna do then that's a problem for future us are they even the same people who knows i don't know uh yeah i haven't got my my, my forehead syringe yet today so you know okay yeah back up put it in the fridge <laughs> <laughs> and we'll see what what kind of weird Christiany something or other weird stuff they're doing with this one next week on Watchers of Tomorrow. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, this isn't Forbidden Planet. You have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin. 
and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Maury's Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs> <laughs>